You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, Molly, I made the mistake of writing on the whiteboard in indelible ink the other day. You mean you didn't use those pens that you can just wipe off? Nope. The permanent markers that are for paper only. I, I grabbed one by mistake and I realized too late. Oh, that's too bad, sir. Well, until I put it in perspective. You know, the ink is only indelible in the short term. I mean, sure, I'll never see that board cleaned in my lifetime. Not even alcohol will remove that ink. But in the long term, well, that ink will fade away. You mean long term as in the grand scheme of things? Right. Hundreds, thousands of years from now. Although, of course, the ink will have faded long before that. Probably the chemicals that make up the ink will be bleached by the oxygen in the air. That's what I figure. But then I can stop worrying about messing up that whiteboard. After all, few things on this planet are forever. I mean, there are some things that humans can do and create that will be around for a long time. But what about the really big picture, Molly? When you look at the time scales that the Earth is used to, geologic time, our perspective changes. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Are We Alone? and part two of our look at what will be lost and what will last in the future. In part one, we considered the situation a century from now. Well, I'll see your century and raise you a factor of 10. What might things look like a millennium or more from now? Welcome to part two. Here's a recipe for longevity. Combine some atoms of carbon and hydrogen to form a chemical compound called ethylene. This molecule actually forms on its own in nature, but when you subject it to high heat in a lab or maybe in a factory, it forms long chains, becomes stronger, and turns into a polymer, in this case, polyethylene, plastic. Polyethylene is one of the most widely used plastics. It holds your groceries, keeps your shampoo bottled up. Making polyethylene is a recipe for longevity, or at least longevity of a sort, because this synthetic material does not biodegrade naturally. It lasts thousands of years. Polyethylene is one of the many types of plastic that we use and that, when we're done with, we simply throw away. Only it doesn't go away. Plastic travels. Last stop is the ocean. And a grim tribute to our plastic throwaway society is floating 1,000 miles north of Hawaii. Bits of plastic of all sizes, caps, bags, toys, they all make up this floating island called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Now, can you picture a floating mass of plastic the size of the state of Texas? Well, that's the size of this thing. It's a freakish concentration of some of the plastic that ends up in the oceans. On the whole, thousands of tons goes afloat every year. Captain Charles Moore discovered the Pacific Garbage Patch in 1997, and he's been following it ever since. Welcome to the Plasticine Epic. I couldn't come on deck without seeing soap bottles and bottle caps and shards of plastic. Some fragment of our debris, our trash, floating by. It wasn't so much a solid mat of trash as just an inability to escape from some evidence of human civilization. But yet the area we were transiting is as far from human civilization as you can get on Earth. Now, that was a dozen years ago. You've been back. Uh, what's the situation now? What do you find now if you go out there? Well, the situation is deteriorating, I guess you could say, or increasing. Uh, the average number of pieces of plastic trash per square kilometer in our original study in 1999, when we went back two years after the original discovery and quantified the debris was 300,000 pieces per square kilometer. Now that average nine years on 
is well over double that amount, going on towards a million pieces per square kilometer. Okay, so going on to a million pieces of trash per square kilometer, where's this stuff coming from? Based on a study done by the UNEP, which is the United Nations Environmental Program, 80% originates from land-based sources and 20% from ships at sea. Uh, but the, the problem is, by the time it gets out there, it's broken into bits, and we can't really tell where it's coming from. You know, you pull up a, a trawl net out there with a third of a millimeter mesh, you're going to have a plastic soup of little plastic fragments mixed in with zooplankton, and we can't just take a piece of that plastic, something the size of your fingernail, and and guess where it came from. Okay, so there's an origins problem. Uh, and, but what other problems are there with the trash per se? I mean, clearly this this probably doesn't look good. Yeah, actually, I think the significance of the uh, problem lies in the ability of plastics to transport pollutants up the food web. What you've got is a sponge for oily pollutants. Plastic has the ability to suck up oil and leave the water. So oily pollutants that are in the water are being absorbed into the plastic, whether it's a tiny little particle or a large plastic float or a net or something. All these plastics floating around out there are, the smaller particles are being used uh, as food mimics. The plastic has the ability to, to mimic every kind of food in the ocean, and so we found 671 fish in our trawls had consumed 1,391 pieces of plastic. One little two-and-a-half-inch long fish had 84 pieces of plastic in its stomach. So these fish are, are being fooled into eating these polluted bits of plastic and those pollutants that have been sorbed to the plastic then desorb into the tissues of the animal and are then bioaccumulated as these small fish are eaten by larger fish. So it's another way in which our marine food stocks are being contaminated. So, so we're feeding the wildlife of the sea, if you will, our packaging and our engine oil. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's not an exaggeration what you say. That's a very succinct way of putting it. Uh, let me ask you the obvious question. Why, why can't we stop this? I mean, the stuff that's coming from land, I mean, I don't understand it at all. Are people just shoveling their plastic trash into the waves? What, where is this coming from? Well, you just have to understand that plastic now is a ubiquitous part of our lifestyles. It's part of our food delivery system. And so what you've got is a situation, and probably can observe it on any trash day, driving down your local streets where people have put their bins out, is that the things are overflowing. Plastic is a space hog, and you just can't keep it contained. It's so light, it blows with the slightest air. I've visited the largest uh, landfill, the Fuente Hills, and in Los Angeles with a film crew and uh, observed uh, what I thought were birds flying in circles uh, a couple hundred meters up in the sky and put binoculars on it and realized what I was seeing. Well, yes, there were some birds up there, but they were flying with plastic bags. The bags were circling around in the wind currents. Every time we get a strong wind, we lose a great many of these lightweight plastic packages out of our landfills. I recall when I saw The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman many years ago, and he was at some party in which he was told that the future was, one word, plastics. Well, I guess the future has arrived. What, what, are, what is this saying about the human legacy? I mean, how do we get off the rails here? Well, I, I think our legacy is one of fouling the earth with plastic and the sea. The scientists I talk to are beginning to talk about what they call the plasticine layer, which future geologists will find in their core samples, a thin crust of plastic covering virtually the entire earth and the sea floor. So this is the age of plastic. Uh, and, and the age of plastic, this is the first age where the material that defines the age is not reused. We reuse and recycle less than 5% of all plastics. This was much higher in previous ages. Steel and iron, even today, are recycled at much higher rates than that. So this is the first age in the history of mankind in which the material that defines the age uh, has not been able to develop a system for reuse. Well, Captain Charles Moore, thank you for talking to me about this uh, very disturbing subject, and I think I'm going to go 
get a glass of water out of the tap and not out of a bottle. Yeah, and hopefully you'll have a glass rather than a plastic cup. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you for the interview. Captain Charles Moore is the founder of the Agalita Marine Research Foundation dedicated to the protection of the marine environment. You can watch him speak at the TED conference and see photos of the sort of plastic he finds floating in the seas and what ends up in the stomach of seabirds on our blog, Are We a Blog, on our website, radio.seti.org. As we look to our future, let's consider what we've learned from digging into our past. Literally digging, that is. The discovery of fossils in Cambrian rock that's 545 million years old revealed the sudden appearance of multicellular animals, the Cambrian explosion. Suddenly, life became more complex. We've pegged the beginning of human bipedalism with the discovery of a 3.2 million-year-old hominid fossil named Lucy. And the birth of agriculture is said to have occurred about 10,000 years ago, something that we've learned thanks to archaeological sites in the Middle East. Yep, and a lot of life's history can be read in the rocks. So what is the life of the Holocene epoch? And that's the one we're in today, by the way, in case you haven't set your watch leaving behind for future generations to dig up. Well, as Captain Moore mentioned, a layer of plastic for one, but more than that, says geologist Jan Zelichevich, whose book, The Earth After Us, imagines what traces of our civilization alien geologists might find if they visited our planet hundreds of millions of years from now, when humans are perhaps no longer around. The Earth might look like a somewhat distorted version of present-day Earth. One thing that will certainly have happened is that the continents will have changed position by hundreds, perhaps even a thousand or two kilometers. So the Atlantic Ocean might be much wider, the Pacific Ocean much smaller. The chances are that there will be smaller or maybe no ice caps at all. So sea level will be higher, more ocean, less land. And these archaeologists of the future who are digging us up, who the heck are these guys? I guess one possibility is that they will be the aliens, the people that we hope are out there somewhere, you know, in the galaxy or in the universe, finally come to land, you know, on planet Earth. So these paleontologists of the future, these alien paleontologists, they're just doing fundamental research, right? They're digging down through the layers, trying to find the history of life on this planet. Do they find anything? I mean, is there any evidence of humanity's presence? Not straight away, because we occupy such a, a small fragment of time, of the Earth's time, uh, and therefore we will, in that future, occupy such a thin layer of, of, of the strata that it won't be immediately obvious, and there'll be nothing on the surface, because anything at the surface will have been eroded away. So they will have to search back through the strata uh, into the past. Well, when you say we've left a very thin stratum, what's, what's in that stratum? Is it our technology, or the buildings that we've built, the things we've made, or is it just our bones. It will vary depending uh, on where that stratum was formed. If it was formed in the deep sea, there might be nothing of direct human origin in there. If it was formed in a desert, again, there might be nothing of direct human origin. So one would have to trace that time surface, if you like, that time surface in the strata to a place where there might be a fossilized road or even a fossilized city. And once they stumble upon a fossilized city, then they can behave as the if like the archaeologist of the deep past. How long would this stuff last? You're, you're talking 100 million years into the future. What sort of things would we make that could last that long? I mean, I assume everything would be chewed up by plate tectonics and, and you know, volcanic action and so forth. It would all be destroyed beyond recognition. A lot of it will be decayed, but not everything. When you think of, of some of the, the delicate fossils that are preserved from well over 100 million years ago, they're really quite fragile things. Uh, and yet we get beautiful examples from, from the, the deep, deep past. So depending where and how those objects are buried, you know, the glass, the concrete, the, the, the ceramic, even the wood, you know, or the paper, it will have changed. It might be carbonized. The glass has probably gone opaque. A lot of things will be crushed. But nonetheless, they will be reconstructable. Jan, lay out the scenario of how a city would be buried, uh, geologically speaking. Take a city like New Orleans. It's near the ocean, after all. That's right, yes. You, you can predict more or less now the cities which are destined uh, for preservation uh, into the geological future and those which are not. Uh, New Orleans has a good chance of being preserved because it's, it's sitting on top of the Mississippi Delta, which is a huge mass of sand and mud brought down by the Mississippi. It is subsiding slowly and inexorably under its own weight. So it's pressing the crust down. And as it subsides, it builds up more and more layers. 
So New Orleans will be trapped inside one of those layers. What will preserve best will be the the substructure, the bottom parts, the, the concrete pilings, the subways, the electric wires. The upper parts will probably be smashed and broken up. So we'll have, a, if you like, a, a very distinct top and bottom to our stratum, one poorly preserved, one well preserved. What about the effects that we have on the planet? I mean, there's a lot of talk these days that we're changing the climate or that we're responsible for the disappearance of large numbers of species and so forth. Would any of that be obvious? That will probably be the first thing that they find. It'll be our wider effects because uh, those really will be a clear signal. Take, for instance, the, the mass extinction that is beginning and that is likely to unfold in, into something to compare with the great extinctions of the past. You will get fossils of the life before and fossils of the life after. And the boundary between those two should be as clear as, let's say, the boundary between the Mesozoic era with the dinosaurs and the Cenozoic, the age of mammals. Well, maybe I can use that as an analogy. I mean, if they go through the, the layers, the sedimentary layers of, of the history of Earth, and they, they, they go up to a certain point, and then suddenly, you know, a lot of the biota disappears, would they be able to say that we self-destructed? Would they be able to say, hey, you know, they did something to themselves, or is that somewhat ambiguous? I can envisage a great many animated discussions, you know, in, in the far future, because you're quite right, even, even today, we, we see extinction events of the past, we have relatively good evidence, and yet, you know, there are alternative candidates, there are many smoking guns. So yes, they will debate, you know, whether humans were quite accidentally wiped out together with many other things, or whether the, the humans were the, were the perpetrators of the act. Hold it right there, and we'll continue with Seth's interview with Jan Izalachevich in a moment. You're listening to Earth, a millennium hence on Are We Alone? This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. X-N-A-S. We now return to Seth's interview with geologist Jan Zelichevich about the legacy that humans will leave in the rocks millions of years from now. Jan, these alien geologists who visit Earth in the future, what might they conclude about us based on what they find? Again, one can imagine many discussions over the equivalent of a, a glass of alien beer in, in the future, <laughs> because there'll be evidence, I think, of warfare, probably that'll turn up, of, of interspecies killing. There'll be evidence also of care, of healed human bodies and surgery and, and such like. So I think we will leave quite a, one might say, a Shakespearean record of patches of both the good and bad sides of us. But will we leave Shakespeare himself? I mean, will they know about Shakespeare or Elvis Presley or some others of our cultural heritage? Or is that absolutely doomed? I think that's a sad part because books might preserve occasionally as, as carbonized blocks where, you know, completely undecipherable. CDs preserve rather less well than do old-fashioned gramophone records. And even if they could read the symbols on those, they would then have to interpret that, you know, in terms of, of the music we produce and the poetry we produce, which I think is probably uh, one step too far, even for the best archaeologists. 
All right. Well, finally, Jan, you know, given the fact that we've been on this planet for a couple of hundred thousand years as a literate society for a few tens of thousands of years, and, you know, maybe that's as far as it goes, you know, I would just like there to be a record. Would you recommend that we put a time capsule on the moon, you know, kind of cleverly marked, maybe with a lot of paint or something, so that if this scenario actually plays out, if this description you've made in your book plays out, then these future archaeologists will then at least have some clue as to what we actually did. That would be absolutely great. And, and the moon would be the place to store it with an everlasting uh, solar power device to, let's say, what can one show? A video with some of the world's great ballet, or maybe even try and preserve and have played automatically that LP of, of some of Duke Ellington's music, for instance. <laughs> All right. Jan Zelichevich, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Jan Zelichevich is a geologist at the University of Leicester and the author of The Earth After Us, What Legacy Will Humans Leave in the Rocks? Okay, let's hit on one more mess humans have created that threatens to be around for a long, long, long time. In fact, is there anything that lasts longer than radioactive material? I mean, if you think indelible ink is bad. Remember that plan to bury nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain in Nevada? That idea was nixed. Ixnay on the Uckayay, Outenmay, and Play. So what to do with radioactive rubbish that just won't go away, asks New York Times reporter and Scientific American contributor Matthew Wald. We're not doing very well at figuring out what to do with the waste coming out of nuclear reactors for the long term. We can store it safely for decades, but the long-term plan has always been to bury it, and we're having trouble finding a place to do that. Now, this may be a physics 101 question, but I wonder if you could explain what nuclear waste is exactly. It's this radioactive material that is the product of this nuclear process, in this case, nuclear fission, involved in creating nuclear energy. Most of this material is civilian nuclear waste, meaning it started out to be uranium. And the waste consists of some uranium that never got split, some uranium that didn't split but absorbed a neutron from uranium that did split and became something new called plutonium, and a whole alphabet soup of isotopes, most of them don't exist in nature, that will last for varying periods, some going out to millions of years. So in terms of our legacy on this Earth, there are very few things that will last this long that we've produced. Oh, a lot of this stuff will outlive us, yes. Now, how much of this nuclear waste do we have to dispose of? For civilian waste, we have tens of thousands of tons, and we're adding many tons a year because we're still running reactors, and we're talking about building more reactors. In addition, there's another entire category, which is military waste. These are left over from everything, from the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and from the thousands of bombs we made to counter the Soviet Union, which we never actually used, but we still have lots of waste. Now, it's stored in such a way that it's a little bit safer than perhaps has come across to the public, where one politician, I think, referred to it as sitting in these pools, which made it sound like, you know, sort of the neighborhood pool sitting there out in the open. But, but <laughs> well, they're actually stored some in some... is sitting mm-hmm. in spent fuel pools, which mm-hmm. are tough things. They're set up to survive earthquake, etc. And they're kept extremely clean. If you poured tap water into them, you'd be making them dirtier. Their chemistry is controlled to prevent corrosion. But if the waste has been sitting there a few years, it's cool enough so you can then put it in a dry cask. So about half the the reactors around the country have these dry casks that are like small silos. They've got steel sleeves surrounded by concrete. And on the inside, they're filled with an inert gas so you don't get rust. And those can last for decades and decades. But there are reasons why you don't want to have them around forever. The top reason is some of them have outlived the reactors. We've got places where there used to be a reactor. There isn't anymore. All that's left is the spent fuel, which has to be guarded and washed, etc. Well, when we talk about where we store this for long-term storage, this waste, until this year, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, our neighbor here in California, was the proposed site for this deep underground storage. But that plan has been nixed by the current administration. And that puts all these other options into play, which is what you wrote about in Scientific American. Can, can you give me an overview of the sorts of ideas that are being proposed? Yes. We still have on the book something called the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, under which we're supposed to look at Yucca, decide whether that will work, if it will put the stuff there, if not, go on to another site. But we've got the Obama administration saying we're not going to do Yucca. We have several other options. 
in the short term, we'll store the stuff at reactors. In the slightly longer term, we might do dry cask storage at some centralized location. The other alternatives are geologic disposal, meaning burial, someplace besides yucca. Yucca is a volcanic structure. It's conceivable there's a better kind of geology to put it in. Salt, for example, would be a pretty good medium, probably. But how do you get this nuclear waste into salt? You dig a cavern, you put the stuff into the salt, and salt is, they use the word plastic, which to a geologist means something slightly different from what it means to you and me. But it will close in over whatever you put in there and seal it up. And water does not travel well through salt. Water is the medium that would actually open up these containers eventually and carry off little bits of radioactive material and get them into water supplies, which is how our descendants, many generations removed, might end up getting a dose. But if water won't move through this stuff, then it's a good medium, and it's possible that salt would be impermeable to water. One of the things that you talk about is putting this waste into that area where the plates are subducting in a subduction zone so that carries it right down into the mantle. If you think like a geologist, which is to say in terms of millions of years, you could conceivably bury it someplace where it will eventually be swallowed up into the Earth's mantle, and that would solve your problem. But at the moment, we're not looking at that. We're looking at some shorter-term fix. Now, how about shooting it into space? Well, that's a possibility. It's very heavy. There's a lot of it, and our launch record isn't perfect, and you really wouldn't want the stuff coming back down after a launch failure. And also, you wouldn't put it in Earth orbit. You'd need to put it in orbit around the sun, which is tricky. We do that, but that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of work. Now, when people talk about how long they want to dispose of nuclear waste, is there a certain time after which no one cares what happens to it, if it leaks into the water, if it leaks into the ground? Either, yes, after I'm dead, I don't care, although that position is a hard sell. Or, originally, the Department of Energy set out to isolate the material for 10,000 years. An opponent said, no, you can't do that. The National Academy of Sciences was commissioned by Congress many years ago to figure out what to do. And the National Academy said that you had to isolate the stuff for a period commensurate to its radioactivity, and a court ruled, well, that means a million years. Now the problem is, it's awfully hard to make a scientific case. I have a location, I have a design, I have a procedure that gives us assurance that this stuff is going to be isolated for a million years. 10,000 was tough. A million's a lot tougher. In these discussions, do people talk about whether or not human civilization will even be around then? Ah, yes. In fact, there are people who've toyed with how you would make a warning sign that you would put above the repository telling future generations, don't drill here, do not enter. Presumably, English will have come and gone over this period. And even the desert will have come and gone. We'll be going through cycles of climate change, cycles of glaciation. Southern Nevada could turn into a jungle and then back to desert again during the million years. And what sort of symbols have been suggested? There are pictograms. There are various symbologies, not unlike the space probe that was launched to go outside the solar system. None of them has been finalized. And exactly how well these would work, we will never know. You might create some sort of symbol or some sort of signage that would indicate that there's this dangerous nuclear waste here. But, Matt, wouldn't you also have to figure out what material that you create this sign with? Because it would also have to withstand, you know, maybe thousands and thousands of years of weathering and change and geologic change and forces and so forth. Uh, You would end up looking at some natural materials. In fact, the people looking at where to put nuclear waste have examined the pyramids and other extremely old man-made structures to see what survives and what doesn't. Thank you very much, Matt Wald, for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Matthew Wald is a reporter for The New York Times and author of the article, What Now for Nuclear Waste, in the August 2009 issue of Scientific American. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, well, the news so far about our legacy on the planet, a thousand or even millions of years from now, is like eating yogurt a week past its expiration date. It leaves you sour. But hold on, there are some bright notes as we look at what will last. Radio waves in space, for one, and that's because radio waves, while they they get weaker, they never completely fade away. They just keep on trucking. Now, we've sent out plenty of these immortal mementos, our first broadcasts of the television show I Love Lucy. They're now 58 light years into space. They're getting close to the bright star Aldebaran, by the way, if you're keeping score. Indeed, SETI researchers hope to pick up such radio signals from some other intelligent civilization. And if they do, the question is, should we reply, and what do we say? Earth Speaks is a SETI Institute research project that aims to create a public discussion about those very questions. Doug Vakoch is in charge of crafting what may be one of humanity's most enduring legacies. Well, the case against sending a message to E.T. is that we'd have to wait so long to get a reply. Realistically, it could be hundreds or even thousands of years for a round-trip reply. The upside, the reason that you really should think serious about transmitting is, given that it does take that long, well, maybe we better get started. I mean, generation after generation could say, yeah, but we're not going to benefit directly, but... Maybe people a thousand years from now will look back and say, we're sure glad those people at the beginning of the 21st century took the initiative. Now, the messages of Earth Speaks can be in the form of text or pictures or sound? Oh, we're getting a, a, a variety of messages, right? You can you can send in a text message. There are people sending in photographs. So there's this great um, scientific diagram by someone from the Czech Republic trying to explain some basic ideas of geometry and mathematics. Uh, there are original musical compositions coming in. Uh, and then there are a lot of uh, messages, text messages, too. Um, that's the simplest thing. Just sign up and, and type in on your keyboard a text message. And what's interesting about the messages is there's such a a broad variety. So, for example, uh, from Shanghai, someone says, hello, welcome to Earth. So there's a sense of a greeting. And then there are more elaborated uh, greetings as well. So one that came in from Yemen says, for centuries, we humans have looked up to the sky, wondering if we are alone or not in the universe. Now, with advances in our technology, we have found your signal and we offer an image of peace. We believe in the universal hope of creating a better future for ourselves and our children. Together we know that we can achieve that goal. We offer peace, hope, and partnership. So there's a certain sense of optimism about a number of these messages. So the idea is you've been grouping these into themes. We've been grouping them into themes. So in addition to submitting the message itself, whether it's photo or text message or sound file or music, people then give a brief label or a tag to it. And some of the most common tags that we're seeing are um, hope and greetings and welcome. But there's also a sense that the welcoming, we may be a little bit ambivalent. One contributor from India said, don't be apprehensive. We can embrace strangers. And yet there's the recognition that we, we're a little ambivalent. Some, someone said just the opposite. They said, you know, no vacancy. We're very succinct. Sort of the, the immigration position that some people take in this country. That's right. That's right. But, you know, the variety of messages we're, we're getting, people are really grappling with um, some of the challenges that we face here. So there are some people who are saying in their messages, we are dealing with severe environmental issues. Do you, a more advanced civilization, have any insights that you could share with us? And, and people are doing it in a variety of ways. You know, some of the messages are very uh, much humorous, to get a humorous stance. One message from uh, Phoenix said, single blue planet with a history of violent mood swings and infantile behavior seeks caring, technologically well-off significant other to fix our problems for us. So the idea is here that we hope that, and I think it would be, if an alien civilization were to receive these messages and transmit back to us, that they would be sufficiently advanced beyond our capacity, and so maybe they could help us. And you know, that's really one of the, the one of the assumptions of, of SETI is that if we make contact, it's probably with an older civilization. I mean, if other civilizations last as long as we've had the technology to communicate, you know, 60, 70 years, and, and then they either destroy themselves or, or turn inward and become more contemplative and, and stop exploring, 
then the chances we won't make contact. So if we get a signal at all, it's probably from an older civilization. And so that means they've probably made it through this technological adolescence that we're in the midst of right now. What you shared with us so far are these written messages, but not all messages that have been submitted have been written. And in fact, one, at least one sixth grader, suggested that we play sounds from the earth. In fact, as we were developing this project, which was originally going to emphasize the texts and the images, it was Kamau Hamilton, a sixth grader from New York, who got involved with a project called Kids Science Challenge. And he came to us and said, how about if you include sounds as well? And so he went around his neighborhood in New York. He came out here to California, and he recorded a number of great sounds that kind of give us insights into the world through the eyes of an 11-year-old. So we hear some of the sounds around his neighborhood uh, as there's a street vendor grilling chicken. When he was out here, he was out uh, recording some sounds of crows. And then a plane went over. And so there's this wonderful juxtaposition of sounds of nature and technology. Sometimes these are accidental, the, the, the combination of the crow and the airplane. But other times it's really saying, what is it that we would want to say to another civilization? What's important about our life? So, you know, hearing the sounds of children running down steps at school, that's what's important. Uh, to a sixth grader. Now, Doug, how do you send sounds of nature through space, and how long would it take for it to travel through space? And would the audio recording, or however it is that you transmit it, would it fare well? Would it would it withstand the travel, the interstellar travel? Well, for any kind of message that you'd want to send, you'd need a, a good redundant coding scheme. So I think no matter what kind of content you'd want to send, whether it's a, a message that's a pictorial or an audio file, sound file, as long as you have enough repetition in it, you'd probably be able to get the message across intact. The tricky part, though, is giving enough clues so that the recipient knows how to decode it. How do you even know that we're sending a sound? How do you know that we're sending a picture? I mean, even here on Earth, we take it so for granted. You see a picture, you, you draw a picture of a human being, you show it to someone else, and well, of course, they'll recognize this is a human being. But if you don't look like a human being, you're probably not going to recognize it. And even here on Earth, you show a picture of a human being drawn by a person in one culture to someone in another culture, it may look unintelligible. There's some beautiful ceremonial carvings uh, of the Maori. Here's a human being. To me, it looks like this beautiful geometrical shape. But once they point out, well, here's the arm and here's the leg, I say, oh, well, of course. But it's not, of course, unless you know the key. So once you can describe some of those basic principles, you can now describe these very complex sounds in very simple physical terms. And ultimately, the physical has a mathematical representation as well. Because one way that you do communicate throughout the universe is through waves, whether it's light waves or radio waves or whatever the wave frequency might be. That's right. That's right. And, of course, the, the beautiful thing about sending um, a radio signal, sending laser pulses, uh, is that you're traveling at the speed of light. And so it's the fastest uh, means of communication that we know of. But even then, you know, you raise the question, how long is this whole thing going to take? Realistically, hundreds or thousands of years. And you're dealing with a generation that gets impatient if we don't get our emails back within 15 seconds. And I, I think that's actually perhaps the greatest virtue of Earth Speaks, that it's saying we should be patient. That there's, there's a real appeal to, you know, typing in your text message and two weeks from now this is going to be transmitted to another star. But for a conversation with another civilization that would last over the course of generations, I think more forethought is warranted. Doug, thank you very much. My pleasure. Doug Vakoch is Director of Interstellar Message Composition at the SETI Institute. If you have a message for Doug and for the aliens, go to earthspeaks.seti.org or look for the link on our radio page, radio.seti.org. But in the millennia to come, we may be speaking from locations other than Earth. That's right. Imagine colonies on the moon or Mars or giant artificial habitats hanging in space near our natal world. A millennium from now, humans may be living in space. Seth asked NASA scientist David Korsmeyer about the future of human habitation in space. Ace, ace, ace. Big masses ace. of people, like uh, the uh, Gerard O'Neill colonies uh, in the 70s. Uh, exactly. High frontier. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, think about it. Uh, I'd love to do that, and I think a lot of people who work at NASA would love to do it. But it's a big effort to get out there. 
and we're making small steps towards it. We just don't simply know enough to put 10,000 people up in orbit, let alone do we have the capability to pull that off. Uh, did NASA do some studies of space colonies? I, I, I thought they did it. It seems to me I saw a publication come out of NASA in the 80s or thereabouts uh, on this subject. There was uh, some stuff actually with Jared K. O'Neill uh, in the late 70s. They did some analysis, uh, and one of the associate administrators for spaceflight was kind of a uh, L5 fan, and they looked at it, and the idea is uh, tenable if you've got some engineering expertise that we do not yet have, uh, which is basically how do you put up big masses of metal in space and machine it while you're up there? Because if you look at station, right, that's our closest analogy. We build all the pieces on the ground, and they're big, and so we have to have a big launch vehicle to put them up there, and then you put them together like an erector set. Okay, that's good. But think about the O'Neill colonies, which were a big, long aluminum, say, or steel can. We're talking hundreds of meters in diameter and maybe a kilometer long. How are you going to put that together? you got to have a whole new way of doing business. Great idea, but we got to do some practice first. I thought their suggestion was that you could at least get aluminum off the moon. I mean, you get this bauxite off the moon, which is the raw material yeah, of the ore yeah. for aluminum, I think. And then uh, you had all this sunlight in space, of course, 24 hours a day, you get this sunlight. And so you got all the energy you need to turn it into metallic aluminum. Uh, couldn't you also get some milling machines up awesome. there? Awesome. Yeah, right. You put a big uh, solar smelter, right, and some have, have some way to extrude it, roll it, flatten it out, put it into a big sphere. And then while you're at it, you need to pressurize it with a lot of oxygen somehow, probably coming from more lunar regolith. Again, good idea. Let's put a mass driver on the surface of the moon while we're at it. Good, good, good concepts. Engineering-wise, though, it takes a fair bit of effort to get there, and we're actually making small incremental steps along that way. It's just going to take us more than, I think, the 30 years we were hoping for. You want to make a prediction? When, when are people going to be living in these real colonies? Real now? colonies, real things, or souped-up kind of space station, lunar-based things? Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about real colonies. That I, I can call them colonies, and I, I can count on them to you know, have a revolution and break away from us. Late this century, maybe early 2100s. Okay, so we're talking about 100 years away. We're talking about a generation or two away. Try and picture now, 1,000 years from now. I think you'll grant that 1,000 years yes. from now, we're going to have stuff like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. What's life going to be like on these things? Because if you describe to the general public, hey, look, your descendants are going to be living in this big rotating can. Yeah. Right in orbit, and, and people look at you and they say, "Well, I I don't think that that's a a good future for my descendants." And I, you know, I try and point out probably wouldn't have any mosquitoes or things like that. I mean, what would it be like in these colonies of the future? Well, I think actually you may have mosquitoes. You're going to want to take along enough of a biosphere, right, so that it is somewhat sustainable. Right now, we take up, you know, mick air and you know mick toilet paper and mick everything up into space because we have to bring it all back down or we just let it fly around loose in orbit. Not a good idea. If you're going to have a sustainable habitat, a sustainable colony, basically it's got to be closed in the, in the sense that stuff goes in and you reuse it. There's an ecology to it. And that's what you're going to have to actually have. So the idea O'Neill had and those pictures you used to see of this curved interior with plant life, I actually believe you're going to need something of that class. You're going to need a big biosphere that we do figure out how to make it sustainable. And it may include bees and mosquitoes or something, you know, uh, maybe not the really bad stuff, but don't think that rats aren't going to come along and, uh, you know, ants or something that we don't want isn't going to come along. Life has a way to come along with us whether we want it to or not. I, ho I hope there's no ecological niche for poison ivy. I, I no, no. <laughs> I'm hoping there's like vineyards in space is what I'm looking for. <laughs> okay, but so it, it looks like Earth except for the fact that when you look up, you see your neighbors up there, you know, a half a mile or a mile away above your head. I mean, is you know, I can hardly believe the lifestyle is the same as Earth, if, you know, just because it has the same plants, the same flora and fauna. No, it wouldn't be pastoral, right? I mean, that, that wouldn't make perfect sense. So you're going to have uh, basically a living environment, and if you're going to really use uh, rotating centripetal force to give you some semblance of artificial G, and that has to happen unless you want to, you know, unless physics changes, the only way you're going to pull this off is to have a big mass to hold you down or spin a can. If you spin a can, again... Like you were saying, you're going to be 
on this curved surface, and you need to be far enough away from the curved surface so that you don't get dizzy, you, like you feel like you're spinning. So it's going to be maybe a couple hundred meters in diameter. So you'll be able to look up 100 meters away. You'll be able to see the surface on the other side of the, of the can. And that will be very interesting. And playing baseball will be very interesting, too, because as you throw the ball, depending on whether you're throwing along the axis of rotation or not, the ball will curve away from you. So it'll be a whole new set of sports up there. But you can understand if you really is a colony and it really is a settlement, you'll have stuff like that. People will have social, you know, sports. They'll have uh, religions. They'll have environments. They'll have communities. All of that will come along with the human species as we propagate out into the solar system. You know, this kind of it gives me a different picture than the kind of colonization in space that people routinely talk about, where they're talking about uh, domes on the moon or Mars. You know, you see these artist renditions of our future on Mars where we're sort of half buried in the sand there on Mars, right. that kind of thing. And and it never strikes me as those never look to me like big colonies. I and mean, maybe you could have big colonies on the moon or Mars, but isn't there eventually a lot more real estate in these uh, sort of space habitats? Well, again, it's it's what you make. Um, in order to get the materials to build these space cans, right, you either have to get it from up there or bring it from down here. If you get it from up there, there are a limited number of home depots, so to speak, for dirt, rocks, bauxite, regolith, you name it. All right, there's the moon. There's maybe some near-Earth asteroids that come wandering by that we can grab and marshal. And then there's going to places, to other deep gravity wells like Mars, and making use of the material there. Uh, if you make use of the material, you're going to need to have a mining community. And if you remember, San Francisco is known well as a mining town until we found a particular set of ore that really engendered a lot more interest than we all thought it was going to do. Right? When the gold rush comes, it's going to be on Mars. It's going to be on the moon. We don't know what's going to be the gold. That's what's going to get us out there. All right. Well, finally, is this inevitable? I mean, we're stuck on this planet, which frankly, doesn't have that much more real estate on it uh, that's, you know, unexploited. And either our population has to be constrained and just held at some finite level, or we're going to have to expand into space simply to avoid, you know, just getting into fights over the diminishing uh, natural resources that we need here. And I'm not talking about oil or coal or things like that. I'm talking sure. about some of the things like precious metals, platinum or copper, and things, zinc, things like that that we'll run out of and we can't recycle. So isn't this kind of inevitable that a thousand years from now, most of us will be living not on the surface of Earth? Or don't you see it that way? Uh, I think it is inevitable that the human species will take on the inner solar system as part of its overall range. Does that mean that we're still not going to have tens of billions of people? Well, not tens of, but a 10 billion person Earth? Yeah, we're still going to have that, just like Europe is still fully occupied, even though somehow the New World was going to offload everybody to there, and Australia was going to take all the criminals, and da-da-da-da-da. doesn't quite happen that way. Earth is going to stay the center, but there may be new centers or foci out there. Where are they? Are they on the moon? Are they on Mars? Are they on O'Neill colonies? To be determined. Finally, Dave, if uh, you could push a button and live in a uh, space habitat a, a millennium from now, would you do that? Sure. Can we do it tomorrow? <laughs> Dave Korsmeyer, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. David Korsmeyer is a scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. So, Seth, these colonies in space will ensure that humans live for a long time, but will it be forever? Well, I, you know, that's uh, always the big question. Will humans be the last intelligent species on this planet? Uh, frankly, I doubt it. But, you know, we've only been around for a couple hundred thousand years as Homo sapiens, and, and there are species on Earth that, that have lasted 150 million years or more. I mean, the dinos did, sharks have. Uh, some species, trilobites, lasted even longer than that. So, you know, biologically, we could last a very long time. But I think that what will happen long before that is we'll start moving off into nearby space, as we've discussed, or maybe we'll just in invent our successors. Well, that's humans, but when we start talking about longevity and we think about the universe, is there anything in the universe that lasts forever? The sun, energy? Nothing lasts forever. The stars will all go out. I mean, the sun will go out in, beginning in about 5 billion years. So mark it on your calendar now, about 5, five billion years now. You know, sun's just going to run low on fuel and terrible things will happen. The earth will get cooked and so forth. I mean, you don't want to see that. But of course, 5 billion years from now, we, you know, if we have any descendants, they can, they can escape that. 
But a, a more serious thing happens about 100 billion years from now when all the stars die. They've all run out of fuel. And so then the universe begins to get somewhat dark. But it turns out there's still some sources of energy around, and, and any descendants, if they're clever enough, can still beat that rap. But eventually you get to the point where nothing more happens, and that turns out to be in 10 to the 100 years. Now, 10 to the 100, that's a number. You, you write one, and then you write 100 zeros after it. In that length of time, the last black hole has evaporated. There's no more energy around. There's you know, only a thin gas of material. The galaxies have all essentially evaporated and collapsed into giant black holes, but those have evaporated. There's really not much left. The universe is still around, but it's just this enormous and expanding sea of dark matter that's doing nothing. And so that's sort of the end. So, you know, it's, it's going to end there for sure, if not sooner. Well, I'll tell you something that's going to end sooner than that, and that's this show. Oh, that's no. it for our show. That's the end of our show. Well, thanks to Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their enduring efforts to produce it. Also to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where searching for life elsewhere in the universe means not only understanding life here on Earth, but time scales beyond our own. You've been listening to part two of our two-part series, Earth, a millennium hence. If you listen to part two before part one, well, there's no problem. You can find that missing episode at our website, radio.seti.org. Look for Earth, a century hence. Are you still listening to that old radio transmission, THX 1139? Affirmative. The program has concluded. Curious to listen to human intelligence in the 21st century. Carbon-based intelligence was limited. Yes, but perhaps humans were more perceptive than we have fully appreciated about some things. Did they foresee us and what we have created? No, but then again, no one did. But they did believe humanity would endure, and in some sense, they were correct. Do you like my necklace? It is retro. I like it. What are those shiny round things hanging on it? Polyethylene ketchup bottle caps. What is ketchup? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 